Gresham College presents Magna Carta, Questions and Answers, chaired by Stephanie Flanders, with Lord Igor Judge and Anthony Arledge, QC. But we now have uh, a few minutes for your questions. And, uh, oh, I see, we've already got one question. Well, those of you who um, have, uh, have questions, if you could, I think you, they want you to go, are you, are you, we have roving mics, or should you go to a particular, yeah, roving mics. So if you could... Um, this gentleman here, and then also further. In fact, first I think was further back on uh, on the there's, arm. There's a lady just over there. Yes, yes, and there's a lady here. Can I ask just before you start? Um, we don't because we don't have that much time, and we'll obviously want it to be sort of questions. So I'm I'm hoping I'll always hear that sort of rising intonation at the end of a sentence <laughs> that's associated with a question. <laughs> um, to none uh, shall. We sell to none shall we delay or deny right or justice. Is that the most complete statement of law that could ever be said, or has ever been said, or could ever be said? It's a good start. Well, it's wonderful, um, but you then have to ask questions like, who defines what justice is? Um, what is the law? And so it's fine as far as it goes. And I think the more important thing about it is that it's re-echoed and re-echoed not only down the centuries to us, but actually it's become the commonplace. I mean, the most vile dictatorships will assert that justice is going to be done quickly and efficiently by impartial judges who won't do what the state wants them to do. Everybody recognises this is a, a wonderful principle. But I don't think it's complete. That's the only quibble was, I have with the question. It was actually the point I argued in front of Eagle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough then, and it's not enough now, yeah. by all accounts. It, it, uh, I was representing a uh, police officer, uh, and uh, there'd been a, a complaint about the way he had behaved uh, in relation to a certain arrest. But the people arrested were tried first, and the, uh, his own trial was delayed for two years. Uh, the existing cases said that you, uh, you could get a trial stopped if it had been delayed unreasonably and you were prejudiced. But unfortunately, he made contemporaneous notes of what had happened. <laughs> he knew from the beginning the complaint had been made, so it was very difficult to say that he was prejudiced. And that is why, as a, as, as a last resort, I went to Magna Carta and said, look, it says delay says nothing about prejudice, you see. But they didn't agree with me. <laughs> Just a bit further back here, and then we'll go to the lady here. Well, first, thanks very much, everybody, at the top side of this wonderful evening. I'm going to follow through what the earlier gentleman said about Clause 40, the right, in fact, to justice. Um, does in law the right to offend, to qualify that, does it receive, does it require a reciprocal right? I'm sorry, did you yeah. Can you just get talk a close. little bit slower? I know you mentioned about does the law include the right to offend, but if you hold the mic a little bit further away, it might, it's I'll a bit hard this. to catch. I think I'll it's the acoustics. One is aware of the right to offend, but for the right to offend to be correct or right requires also a reciprocal right for the, for the, for the offended. Did you, uh... If by offend you mean to say things that... Uh, may offend other people, in other words, a right to free speech, 
Uh, well, yes, we have that, and that carries the recipro reciprocity that you have to listen to things that might offend you. If that's the answer, to the, if that's the question, as I've understood it, that's my answer. If your question is using offend in the sense of committing a crime, the answer then is no. I just follow this through once more. Uh, Mr. Arledge mentioned, in fact, the Bill of Rights of 1689. That confers rights on parliamentarians, which does not require an injustice of a, a right to reciprocal. Reciprocal right. Well, I'd just like to make one point on this before I deal with that. One of the things about the Charter is that it, it is, in general, it doesn't create rights that apply to everybody. It actually gives privileges. So, for instance, the protection of Clause 39 only applied to free men and women. Uh, and as you go through, and trial by peers is really the peers seeking a privilege only to be tried by other barons. Uh, 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 the other point you're making is a jurisprudential point that I think is of <laughs> too wide an extent to uh, takes us right back to our undergraduate days, which were a long time ago, so I'm well, not sure we can answer I think we've got it. enough on our hands with, with Magna Carta. There was a lady, yes, could you, there's a woman in the middle of the row here, and then we could go here. Hi, I um, saw the Magna Carta in Lincoln Cathedral. What also interested us was there was another charter, and I know you say there were lots of them, which is the Forest Charter, which appeared to give lots of rights to the commoners about common land collecting wood. And I wondered whether, one, that got incorporated in Magna Carta and if it's still valid today because uh, selling off woodlands and things. And it was well, there it, in the same room, the Forest Charter. This goes charter. to the point that... Uh, uh, Lord Judge mentioned that it was not called originally Magna Carta. There, are, there were, uh, because the king in theory owned everything and handed parts of it down to others, uh, he, the, the crown kept large swathes of land, a lot of which they used for hunting, and they called them royal forests, the parks we have now are, are, are the, the descent from them, and there were special and very savage laws uh, which punished you uh, if you um, uh, offended against forest laws. Uh, and uh, there's a clause in the, later on in the Forest Charter which says that in future no one shall be blinded for killing venison, which gives you some idea of what happened before. Now, there were only three clauses of Magna Carta which dealt with forest law. Uh, and uh, when the 1217 Charter was produced, uh, those clauses were omitted and a separate and much more detailed forest charter uh, was set up uh, and it might even be called a charter for dogs because you have, you had a dog in the forest, you had to chop off the bottoms of its feet so that it couldn't um, uh, chase the king's venison and that was finished by the forest charter. But that's why there are the two and it, there is part of the 1215 charter that is a forest charter and the other is uh, a, a wider one. And that, the particular point about the forestry and the forest wood... Uh, is obviously, I mean, even from an economic standpoint, was quite bound up with the invention of private property or the development of private property. In fact, 
um, I discovered when I was doing something about Karl Marx, that that was what initially inspired some of his theories about alienation and private property, was in the local area where he was living in Germany. The peasants had recently been told they could no longer keep the wood that had fallen, the sort of spare wood that had fallen in order to uh, use it to, you know, for their own fires and everything else. And that was the, they were peasants going to prison um, because of that, and he saw that was part of the beginning of capitalism. So if it was part of the beginning of capitalism, obviously you couldn't have had a uh, uh, charter that went against it. <laughs> yes, just here. We've heard in enormous detail about the law and politics of the 13th century. Um, if Magna Carta were to be reissued this year, what clauses would you want to see in it? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, that's a really rather nice question to be, opportunity to be offered. I'd rewrite quite a lot of it. Um, but I would certainly stick to clause 39. Um, I think that's, for us today, that's the most important clause. We must adhere to it. We must remain with it. And I think that in sort of total sum, I think my first clause would not be the independence of the church, uh, partly because I think that Henry VIII did for that in, in the 16th century. Um, I think the rule of law and equality before the law are what I would put in. And I think you can derive that from Magna Carta. There are now, there are three clauses of the original Magna Carta that remain in force. The one uh, protecting the freedom of the church to elect its own bishops. Clause 39 and the clause that protects the liberties of the City of London. Uh, one of the things that is often debated uh, in English law is that we pride ourselves on the fact that we don't have a single written constitution. Uh, and that, the proponents of that say that that gives the courts uh, greater flexibility to meet changing needs. Uh, there, is, there has been talk of actually issuing a new Magna Carta, but I'm not sure that anybody has agreed what should go into it. I think broadly I'd agree with Igor on, on what he said. That's a good question. I can't help thinking any, if there are any undergraduates here, that will surely be a question in the final law <laughs> yes, examination. <laughs> <laughs> We've signally <laughs> failed. <laughs> yes, yeah. Have the courts ever upheld the three clauses of Magna Carta that Tony Arledge just referred to in modern times, or was his argument doomed to failure? Well, yes. Um, the, as a for instance, and there are a number, but I only give one tonight, um, when the civil courts were being plagued by increasing delays, uh, often because insurance companies in personal injury cases found it profitable to keep the money rather than to pay the damages because, can we remember it, inflation being in double figures and, and more. Um, Lord Denning got, got a grip of it and produced judgments which said if you don't pursue your cases quickly they'll be struck out and if you're obstructive to the pursuit of cases quickly they'll be struck out and he directly referred to, Mag to the provisions of Magna Carta. 
and there will be occasions when, when that will happen. It happens much more often um, in the United States of America. Uh, their Supreme Court, which has a different function to our Supreme Court, a rather greater function in constitutional terms than ours, frequently uh, refers to Magna Carta and the provisions of Magna Carta. Um, I can't remember, was it when President Clinton was being pursued at the behest of Paula Jones yes. that the judge there yeah. uh, referred to Magna Carta? Yeah, he, he claimed immunity as president uh, and she claimed that he had harassed her sexually at a conference before he became president and uh, the judge said, no, it must, uh, the, uh, the president is not above the law. And when the Guantanamo Bay issue came to the courts in the United States, again, they referred to the Charter. So it continues to live. And the wonderful thing about it is that we don't necessarily refer to the exact words, but we do remember what was going on there. And state immunity is a very strange creature to which Magna Carta tends to be antipathetic. <laughs> That's not, uh, oh, we'll go further back. So, the, the hand over here, and then we'll go over here. Um, Nico McDonald, I wonder what your reflections are on how much the spirit and, to extent, letter of Magna Carta is honoured today, and whether it, it's being dishonoured increasingly. And I don't want to be too contemporary about this, but. Uh, you indicated that you could derive the idea of the rule of law from Magna Carta. Um, in the case of Ched Evans, which has been in the news recently, it seems the rule of law doesn't apply to somebody who, uh, uh, what's the word, is in a position to influence young people by their behaviour. And I wonder whether you have any reflections in that case, particularly on whether the spirit of Magna Carta is, you know, basically the man has done his time and cannot get a job anymore because he's considered to be uh, an outcast, or if more generally, uh, Magna Carta is being honoured? I guess in general, there's also, over the years, lots of people have claimed, I think Tony yeah. Benn said it was the end of Magna Carta uh, about 20 years ago when various laws were passed that might limited the jury trial. Yes, I think that the answer to your question uh, seems to me to be that that issue has never actually been resolved by anybody except in the court of the newspapers and the television. The interesting question would be what the decision of a judge might, a judge might reach if faced with problems arising from that case. So I don't abandon the idea that I've promulgated. I think that we tend, there are going to be occasions for all of us, I suspect, and in every nation, particularly at times of panic and anxiety, when, no, Magna Carta will not be surging to the front. People will be more worried about security, uh, safety, and so on and so forth. But as a long-term general trend, I think that people in this country recognise the moments when there are dangers, usually dangers by government, dangers by the political process, which will interfere with what the vast majority of people think are rights that we should have, the right to say what you think. There are occasions when Parliament rebels even against its own government, i.e. enough members of the government party rebel against the proposals being put to them. Um, some of the free speech uh, legislation, the Section 28 homosexuality legislation, we have a feeling that we have to do something ourselves to preserve our liberties, and I think when we think they're threatened, 
all of us think Magna Carta. We don't know which bit of Magna Carta, and Magna Carta may not say anything about them at all. But it's a wonderful thing to have a banner under which to fight for what you regard as your liberties. And Magna Carta supplies that banner. And we all know that things go on all around the world that couldn't possibly uh, comply with the spirit of Magna Carta. Magna Carta is actually a very medieval document and it's, if you simply read it through, most of it wouldn't mean much to you at all. But it has become a talisman for liberty and it's almost more important for that reason than any other. Not very long ago, the gentleman who invented the World Wide Web became very concerned at the way that it was being manipulated and used by governments and others. And he said, what we need really is a Magna Carta of the net. And so that's what we refer to. And it's a very simple composite phrase that uh, we, reg we regard it now as the Great Charter, whatever the reason for it originally being called. Even that. though it didn't call itself the Great no, Charter. Yeah. <laughs> I guess just because this is something that will be in people's minds as we go into this year and it comes up in these debates, it would be worth, and it's implicit in what you were just saying, Lord Judge, but if you take in, in the round the last, say, five or ten years' worth of anti-terror and other legislation, often when people have said that it violated the spirit of Magna Carta or indeed the Bill of Rights or whatever, you know, would you say that you know, across the piece that... The, that the spirit of Magna Carta had been violated by some of that legislation, or would you say that there, we'd sort of managed to navigate well, those I, dangers I, that you just talked there about? There has to be a balance. Um, we can't, at least I don't think, that any responsible government should say that the safety of the citizens um, is irrelevant and, um, and everybody must be allowed to do what they like, including blowing up people. I mean, there has to be a balance drawn... I think the legislation, um, one piece of legislation was pretty awful, struck down by the House of Lords in the case of A, a terrorist piece of legislation. But on the whole, and one can't speak in absolute terms, on the whole, I think that we still, the parliamentary process still recognises that there is a liberty issue when you're seeking to protect the public. And that's why we have these discussions, isn't it? Um, you know, we must do this and we must do that. Ah, but is that interfering with the right of free speech? Um, when you preach racial hatred, of course that's to be... Uh, well, I think any form of preaching of hatred is to be abhorred, but of course we mustn't. But hang on, what about the expressions of opinion in strong language? Well, OK, that's all right. What about expressions of opinions that simply disagreeing with someone. Nobody doubts that. So there always are in life uh, compromises to be made, alternatively difficult lines to be drawn which aren't and cannot be final. They're sometimes determined by the times you're living in. And I think that the terrorist legislation, you know, we have had some pretty appalling things happen in London, Madrid, New York, Bali, you name them. And the public... Um, does rather think that we have to do something about it. And I, d I agree with them. I think can we have, we'll have one more, and then I think we really... Uh... 
Maybe, well, yes, we have a lot of more questions than I expected, actually. But so the, the <laughs> lady here in the middle, and maybe if we could take the far right here, we'll take the two together, and then... Uh... That's Robert Worcester. Yes, that's why I'm taking that one. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. 17, clause 17. Common pleas shall not follow our court, but shall be held in some fixed place. Um, what was the significance of that... Uh, in the life of the people of the country. Uh, uh, what, what, um, it, it was at the beginning of the law courts at Westminster, and if so, did that, was that applied then throughout the country? The common pleas. The, Henry II had started a system whereby royal judges went around the counties on a size and tried uh, cases uh, as they went round the country. Common pleas is what we would now call civil disputes. And it was rather annoying to people if they went to one assize town and the judge didn't get round to trying the case. And then they'd go to another town and he wouldn't have time and they had to chase him round the country. And so what they wanted was a court in a fixed place that they could have uh, easy access to. And the, that system still basically applies that there are, there are the law courts in London, but judges still go round. It's not, they're not called assizes. They were called assizes when we were young and peering in front of the red judge at assizes was quite scary. Uh, but uh, now it's called the Crown Court, but the same system basically applies. I think it's appropriate we have Robert Worcester have the last question. Thank you. Uh, an extremely interesting discussion and an extremely interesting book, may I say, uh, through the kindness of uh, Lord Judge. Uh, I was going to talk on the back of that question because that's one of the articles that I pick as one of the ones that is effectively still in law. Mm -hmm. And it's often said, and uh, you, Judge Arlett, uh, did say, there are only three still in law. But widows cannot be compelled to marry. There are standard weights and measures. The pint is a pint for all that was invented in 1215, effectively. Mm -hmm. And the article about having static rather than roving courts is still in practice. I went through and counted 16 articles, not three, that are effectively <laughs> still in law today. Yes, but... but. But yes. they don't depend on Magna Carta. Those laws, those principles are now embraced in, in up, more up-to-date statutes. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's appropriate that we finish on a fine point of law. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And we, I think uh, Gresham, our sort of... Uh, implied host tonight would have been very happy and, and impressed by the proceedings as well. But we're going to have the formal closing remarks now uh, by the provost of uh, Gresham College, uh, Professor Sir Richard Evans. This has been a, a joint event of the uh, City of London Corporation, the Lord Mayor, uh, and Gresham College. Gresham College was founded by the man you can see uh, behind me, uh, Sir Thomas Gresham, 1597, and has been supported ever since then by 
the City of London and by the Mercers Company, an extraordinary and unrivaled record, I think, of, of support which continues to the present day. Gresham College exists to provide free lectures to anybody who wants to come to them, particularly but not exclusively in London, and we have a website that now stores over 1,500 of those lectures. You can get access to that free. There's an app you can download. Uh, this, this is an annual event, but it's a very special uh, annual event this year because of the anniversary of Magna Carta. And I think, as Stephanie said, we've, uh, this is a kind of start uh, this, this, uh, uh, to the uh, a year of commemoration and celebration uh, in two respects, I think. We've heard, uh, I think, the two lines or two kinds of discussion that are going to happen uh, through the year. The one is the historical discussion that places Magna Carta in its historical context. And we'll no doubt be hearing much more about, through the year, about King John, whose um, talent for offending important people was exceeded only by uh, Richard III and James II. And on both those occasions, too, of course, there were uh, invasions uh, from abroad, which uh, got rid of them fairly smartly. Uh, so, as the Lord Judge said, this is a, there's a long history and repeated history of invasions which somehow are rather forgotten by those who think that the last time Britain was invaded or England was invaded was in 1066. Um, it, interestingly, it also shows, I think, how much the history of, of England has been bound up in the history of the European continent over, over the centuries. Another point for debate, I think. But it's not just the... Uh, contemporary, the, the context in 1215 and before and afterwards that we'll be hearing about and we've heard about so illuminatingly today. But also I think the other part of it is uh, somehow uh, Magna Carta has also escaped that uh, contemporary context. And that's because I think some of its principles have and have achieved a universal validity and a universal power. And that's why we refer to them again and again, not just in this country, but in the United States of America and elsewhere as well. Some of you may remember <clears throat> 1989 when uh, the French celebrations of the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, as a guest of President Mitterrand, uh, lectured him on the fact that uh, Britain did not need the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen uh, of the French Revolution. We already had Magna Carta. Uh, and although, of course, it has, it's been changed, amended, improved over the years, some of those principles, I think, are still are still valid uh, today. We, circumstances, the world we live in, change with ever-increasing rapidity. So we have to keep, I think, looking at these, some of those principles, what new principles we need. Uh, to to quote, quote a famous phrase, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. So I'd like to thank on your behalf and on behalf of Gresham College, uh, Lord Judge, Mr. Arledge, and, and Stephanie Flanders for chairing, uh, chairing it with such uh, unobtrusive authority, uh, and to all of you for coming to this event. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.